right, hello everyone. Welcome back to Attention to Detail. Hope everyone is doing well. We've got a very exciting special episode for you today. We're going to start a series looking at some of the most important instruments in the world of classical music, instruments that play in the symphony orchestra, but also the most commonly heard solo instruments. And so I figured no better way to start than with the instrument that I played growing up, the instrument that I'm going to be playing tonight uh, in a concert that we have. And I am joined by my friend, my current roommate, my co-soloist, who's going to be appearing with me in this two-violin concerto tonight, Kevin Lin. Welcome to the podcast. Glad to have you on. Thanks for having me. Thanks of for course. Me. So, Kevin, tell us a little bit about... You're obviously a very accomplished violinist. You're the incoming concertmaster of the Indianapolis Symphony. You were the concertmaster of the London Philharmonic. Can you tell us a little bit about kind of your path on the violin, where you started, where you went to school, all that kind of stuff? Sure, yeah. Um, you're giving me way too much credit. but No, no, no. Uh, so I started violin when I was six. It was, it was kind of the usual story. All my friends were playing violin, so therefore I must play the violin <laughs> too. Um Started at age six. Uh, I think I got more serious about it uh, roughly around high school. So that's, what is that, like, I was maybe 15 or something. Um, and that's when I started uh, studying at the Manhattan School of Music pre-college in New York City. Um, and then after that, went to conservatory uh, out in Los Angeles, studied with Robert Lipsitt. And then uh, did a quick stint over in Philadelphia at the Curtis Institute with Aaron Rosand. Somehow found myself uh, flying across the pond, and uh, my first job out of school was with the London Philharmonic. I was I was the co-leader of the London Philharmonic, and uh, had an amazing time there. And then, you know, life is surprising. But, you know, it's uh, it's very interesting, and brought me back to Indianapolis. Yeah. So that's that's kind of where we're at right now. Well, and, you're being modest because for our listeners, it, it turns out that in the music world, there are two really. I think I think usually considered the two most top-notch conservatories that we have. Um, maybe uh, Juilliard would take offense to this, but but it's Curtis <laughs> and Colburn. Those are the two free ones, certainly. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, you were a student at both of those. I was. Those I was. Schools. It's very impressive, and of course, not everyone also gets a concertmaster job and a concertmaster job in such a esteemed orchestra is the London Phil right out of school. So clearly very impressive stuff. So I want to ask you, because um, for our listeners, they'll be curious. Uh, the main point of this episode is to talk about how we listen to violin playing. But can you talk about, because um, I think it's also interesting for people, the world of, uh, of violin playing, how kind of, I mean, it's, I, I grew up in it too. It's incredibly competitive you know, you have all these classmates who are, everyone's gunning to be a professional soloist. Very few people can actually do that. So can you talk about what you think, talk a little bit just about what it's like to be a violinist in conservatory at those great schools and what you think made you uh, thrive and, and result in, in getting a big job and being here now? What's, what are like, Maybe some of the keys to success, or just tell us a little bit about what that world is like. Sure. I well, I, I think the best place to start would be probably undergraduate at the Colburn Conservatory. I think because that's that's kind of where I fully immerse myself in this classical music world. 
Um, being in a class of, I think it was like roughly 20 students, 25 students total. Um, th- and that being said, there's maybe four or five violin students. You are on top of each other all the time. You're always in the same, you're always in a, a practice room that's near each other. You're always in studio class together. So in undergrad, that's basically how you're developing. You're, you're, you're very in the, you're, you're in this tight knit community and you know, um, what everyone's doing. That being said, I think I was very fortunate to be part of a class that was very high achieving. And if anything, I learned more from my colleagues than I did from, from my teachers. I mean, I, I learned a lot from my teachers, but that just goes to show how important it is, um, to be around people who really push you. Um, and being in that environment where everyone, you know, playing perfectly is given everyone, no one messes up from a technical perspective, but you just had to somehow make yourself special. And the only way to do that is to be different than everyone else. Um, and how do you become different from everyone else, especially since everyone's already playing perfectly. And I think that's through the concept of musicality. Mm -hmm. Um, you have to develop this voice that's very unique to yourself. Uh, you know, in, in a way when someone turns on a recording, like, ah, that is Jacob Joyce Mm -hmm. or that's Kevin Lynn. Um, and I think the only way for us to develop that sort of sound is to really research and listen to old recordings, current recordings, figure out what you like, um, and then just be genuine and authentic to yourself. Uh, you just have to do what you like, basically. Yeah, so let's talk about that a little bit because I think that's actually... Um a, a good segue into what's probably one of the most important things for listeners who are listening to violin players, violin soloists. Talk a little bit about the difference between technicality and musicality, because I think for a lot of people, especially who are kind of new listeners to classical music, it sounds like every professional soloist they hear plays perfectly. And that we, you know, we can both tell you that's not always the case, and there are some that are better technicians than others. But I think the thing that stands out to even the most inexperienced listeners right off the bat is people's unique voice, their unique musicality. I mean, there's a reason why Yo-Yo Ma is so famous and so beloved. There are many cellists who can play perfectly. So talk a little bit about... Um, yeah, talk about that difference and and also the difference in how like what were you taught growing up um when did musicality become something that you even thought about because it's so hard to master the technique of the violin. Well, yeah, I think it's an interesting concept. I don't think these two things are mutually exclusive. Um I think technique is a tool for you to create musicality. Um, some people just hear music different way uh, to each their own. Some people hear specific passages very straight. Maybe that's what they want to bring out, uh, in a particular passage, but maybe some people would like to take more time here and there. Um, and both, no matter how you hear the music, both require an excellent, uh, level of technicality. Mm-hmm. Um, and in order for someone to execute what they want to do musically, their technique has to be 
up to par in order to produce that result. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think those who can play very musically and those who can accurately express what they want to say through music have mastered a level of technicality that allows them to do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's totally true. But it's it's this interesting phenomenon too. When my uh, friends and I... um, have talked in the past about, you know, I'm sure you've also followed and participated in, in like big violin competitions. And, mm-hmm. um, some of these competitions are what determine people's careers. And you listen to these people and there are certain things like the people who just play more in tune yeah. sound, sound better. They course, sound more musical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like, if you have two players, one of them plays 97% in tune and the other plays 95% in tune. Sometimes it feels like it doesn't even matter if the the second person is musical because, mm-hmm. like you said, you have to. For me, I think that's part of it is you have to have this baseline level of technique has to be at such a high level that you almost don't notice it. Exactly. I think I think that's a byproduct of the recording industry and technology moving along, um, and especially with competition these days, you know, musicality is a very relative thing. What I like might not be what you like and vice versa. Um, but now with modern day recording technology and competitions, how do you quantify an art form? And yeah. I feel like that's the way to do it, like by p- playing in tune, um, playing accurately. And so I think in some ways, uh, modern day competitions are is modern it's basically they're just trying to quantify how good a player is which doesn't necessarily give justice to the musical aspect of a particular player Mm because sometimes the most musical players don't always play technically perfect yeah but uh i might find these uh musicians more interesting than someone who plays perfectly per se um like some of the older, I, I'm a big fan of uh, of David Nadia, and he's got this amazing uh, recording on. I think it's on YouTube uh, mm-hmm. of him playing Swan Lake. Yeah, I mean, yeah, technically it's it, it's it's good, it, but I, of course there's more technical players out there. But from a musical perspective, it's the most interesting recording I've ever heard. Um, yeah, so that's just that's that's just kind of yeah, my two cents. And I think that's that's what. I would encourage our listeners to to think about uh, along the lines of of what this podcast is about is the idea that um, I think recordings have very fundamentally changed the way we listen to classical music now. And you now have the ability, anyone in the world has the ability who has an internet connection to listen to basically 10 technically perfect Tchaikovsky concertos, if not 100. So actually, it's a very weird, it's an understandable but weird byproduct of the recording industry that it seems like we value technique so highly these days in competitions and stuff like that, when in reality, these things exist at the touch of a button. And so more than anything, I would think that what people would be listening for these days, especially in live performance, is variety, something Mm -hmm. that they can't listen to at a click of a button. Right. And that's what I would hope our listeners do. If you listen kind of closely and you try to listen to, and we'll we'll talk about this more on this episode and on future episodes, but you try to listen to the choices they've actually made and the, the musical choices they've made and not simply, is this the cleanest 
or most perfect version because recordings also as you know they can be they can be doctored now and they, right, they you yeah. can basically put makeup on them and they sound perfect you could literally drop in a single note it's, yeah it's incredible it's incredible these yeah days. um but i going back to to where i think classical music is headed now you know if we take record old recordings of Heifetz or Milstein, um, they weren't always the most perfect recording, but they had a lot of personality to them. It, it was definitely the case that you can turn on a uh, a recording of somebody and you would know exactly who it is. Yeah, it's much harder harder de- uh, these days. Um, I think I think people play more similarly just because there's such. Uh, you, you have such easy access to all of these recordings now. Um, so I think it's, it all gets mixed in a little bit. But that being said, I do see the future of classical music going back towards more individual playing. Yeah. Um, everyone nowadays is looking for, you know, something analog, something for very, something very unique. Um, so I do see on the competition circuit more players being more experimental, being more individual, and willing to take bigger risks by throwing in a gross slide here and there. Um, so it's, I think, I do think classical music is coming around, um, you know, back to, in, in my opinion, the good old days. Yeah. Well, I mean, you see it with some professional soloists today. Pat Kopp, as she's known. Patricia, I don't yeah, know how to say Ko- her last name. Kopinskaya. Who's, right. who's the Finnish guy who... Uh, Pekka Kuista. Yeah, yeah. So we were talking about him the other day. Similar. Yeah. People who are taking huge risks in performance, and they're actually yeah. very interesting. It's kind of similar. Kevin and I, we both uh, have been sharing you know, a love for many things while we've been living together. One, one thing that we haven't been sharing a love for is the uh, general dating scene in the uh, in the <laughs> world currently we won't delve too deeply into that but i think it's a similar there's this similar phenomenon that i think you see and and i've i've read uh i've read articles about this and obviously everyone sees it for themselves but you know you look at uh the way someone presents themselves digitally like a recording mm-hmm. and there's there can be any amount of touch up cosmetic adjustment you know you can present yourself in the most the, the best light you possibly can and that leads to this enormous amount of like uniformity mm-hmm. you know you've seen those those pictures of uh people who get plastic surgery and the, the miss korea pageant where they all look exactly the same and that's what becomes valued is this kind of conformity of look and but you want to meet people, you want to hang out with people who have personality and they're not, mm-hmm. and, and it's, I think it's a similar thing in, in music making. The recording industry can really add a lot of fake touch-ups, cosmetic adjustments to recordings, but uh, what's interesting and what's exciting is listening to someone's actual, actual personality come out. Um, so I wanted to ask you another thing because uh, you mentioned David Nadian. We have yeah. a couple recording clips. Talk a little bit about from a technical perspective, and I think we you mentioned that it's a little hard to distinguish technique from musicality. But from a technical perspective, what are like what are a few of the things that you and that violinists in general work on hardest to perfect? What are the things that are like baseline? You need to have a really good fill in the blank to be a good technical violinist. 
I think you need to have uh, number one good intonation, great intonation, uh-huh. um, and great build control. I think those are like the two uh, two basics that you need. So the right hand and the left hand. And talk a little bit about what what those actually what that means and what those actually are. Uh, so I mean, intonation is just basically how accurately you can place your left hand on the fingerboard. It, it's I mean every millimeter that you move is is essentially a different note. Um, good bow control with from the right hand uh, will allow you to produce the sound that you want at the time you want it. Mm-hmm. Um, if you don't have good bow control, it doesn't matter whether you have uh, good intonation or not because the right hand is what makes the violin speak. Right, right. Um, so I think, uh, you know, just... Good left hand, good right hand. That is based. Uh, this is like the spark notes of spark right. notes, but um, that basically will give you your basic technique. And so talk. So then, here's how technique seems to kind of relate to musicality. Talk about bow control is the technical aspect, right? But the musical aspect is you're trying to produce a good sound mm-hmm. and a variety of sound. And yeah. so talk a little bit about. Because um, we've got two recording clips here, one of David yep. Nady and one of Sarah Chang. Some of the different sound characteristics that different violinists sure. have. Sure, sure. So I think I mean, there's there's multiple ways there's 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 multiple ways to play the same passage. For example, I think the most basic way to do it is to play it exactly the way the composer wrote it. So mm-hmm. perfectly in time, with the right dynamics and all this kind of stuff. That is, it's. It, it's correct. There's nothing wrong with it. It's 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 great. That's the most basic. Um, what I think makes something special is when someone can push and pull a little bit with what a specific composer wrote, and then put their own spin to it. Mm-hmm. So, for example, Tchaikovsky Violin Concerto. Um, you know, if player X plays it very straight, but player Y can give. Uh, give a more individual performance of that same part, like I might be more inclined to listen to the the other player. Yeah. But it's a fine line, right? Because there are people who who go too overboard. Right. And this is one of the great things of, this is one of the great kind of ways to judge and one of the challenging things about how to judge musicality is that the performer always has to play the delicate game of, how much do I change from what the composer gave mm-hmm. me and how much do I keep the same? And that requires a knowledge of the composer themselves, right. how much the composer would have expected you to vary. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this also points to a key difference for listeners that I think is really important to remember when we're talking about this. Because to understand the kind of choices that someone is making, like you're talking about, where you push and pull and so a lot of the type of listening that we've been talking about on this podcast is about the kind of music itself. So what notes did the computer, the composer choose to write? Um, and now we're talking about a very different kind of listening, which is like, we both know the Tchaikovsky concerto. We right. know exactly how it's going to go. Yeah. And what choices is the performer making? Mm-hmm. That's a kind of second level of listening, but it's one that our listeners can certainly do themselves if you get to know a piece a little bit, it really helps then to be able to see what is the performer doing. So let's listen. Let's, we've got an example of this. Obviously, two fantastic violinists. And like you said, neither of these violinists is playing this exactly straight. But 
we'll first listen to Sarah Chang, uh, recording of Sarah Chang when she was very young, an incredibly talented violinist at mm-hmm. like age 15. But this is kind of our version of a little straighter playing. And then we'll hear David Nadian, who's got a very different, much more uh, risky approach. So here's Sarah Chang. And here is David Nadian. We just heard Sarah Chang. Pretty straight uh, playing. Really nice quality of sound, though. But it's 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 delicate. It's not so in your face. And here is uh, David Nadian, an older violinist. So the quality of the recording is a little less crystal clear. But here is a very different take of this same passage in the Tchaikovsky. So Kevin, do you is, is there one that you you mentioned that you kind of prefer people who who take risks? And so, is there one of those two clips that you kind of lean towards and and prefer, or just talk about? I mean, how they're different and how you might uh, try to decide how you're going to play a piece like this, which you in Sh- fact did play. Yes, I did last year with the ISO. I did, and also the first time I ever met you, we played the Tchaikovsky violin together at Aspen Music Fest. That was the first time. We didn't even we didn't even plan that this was the concerto that we were going to use on this, but that's you're right. It just, it just first happens. time we met. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, which one do I prefer? I of course this is all very very relative to me and I think they're both phenomenal violinists but for me personally I think I am a old soul at heart and I prefer the older recordings and the more risky type playing of course again in my opinion um of David Nadian I like that it's not your standard Tchaikovsky uh-huh. if, if that makes any sense um there is I don't know. It's yeah, just, it's just there's something very special about it. There's something very sentimental about it. And when I when I when I listen to this recording, I know exactly who it is. Yeah. As opposed to, you know, Sarah Chang plays it very perfectly, very good. But I could, you know, it, it could be Gil Shaham. It could be any right. of, the, of the of the people who also play perfectly. Um, I think it's just it's, it's a stylistic difference. We you, you also have to keep in mind these recordings were made decades apart. Yeah. Um. So. 
it's also a different time. And maybe I'm just more nostalgic for maybe I was born in the wrong decade. Well, but so I want to ask you a follow up to that, which is you've played this piece with the ISO Mm -hmm. and you've had many experiences of playing solo concertos just like this. Yeah. What do you feel like? Because this is a pressure that many violinists feel of, you know, people are judging this. This is going to determine if I get called back, if I get more appearances. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's a very real thing. No, absolutely. That's, absolutely. that's in the back of everyone's Modern mind. Modern day work politics. Um, <laughs> and so would you, would you ever actually play a Tchaikovsky concerto like David Nadian? And uh, I mean, it's, it's kind of like... It would it would be a really brave but also a really risky yeah, thing to do sure, probably sure, right. Sure. I I think it's harder to get away with this kind of stuff these days. Everyone jokes about like oh you can't play like Heifetz anymore. If you ever tried playing like Heifetz, you'd be laughed off the stage. Um, but then my response to that is like why? Yeah. Like he he's ex- extremely successful. Like why are people being so? judgmental on what we can or cannot do if this is an art form we're not doing anything illegal um so for the sake of wanting to be called back and uh you know not not destroyed in the comment section uh i would probably err on the side of sarah chang but if i had nothing to lose and i had if i was purely playing just for myself i would definitely take more of a risky old school approach to, yeah. to playing it but that's I'm, but th- but like like i said earlier i i do think there is this push uh to go back to you know a more individual style of playing that yeah. I, I appreciate but it requires a certain amount of bravery on the part of the soloist yes. because yes for any pat cop or mm-hmm. similar who's succeeded yeah there's also how many similar players who have not succeeded exactly. because people are just like they sound bad exactly i wouldn't recommend doing this on the competition circuit like taking risks on the yeah. competition circuit. I, just, I don't think that would fly well and that's one of the most and it's really a huge problem with the classical music world i mean to bring it back to our whole like dating analogy yeah. <laughs> like, you know there are these there are these like powerful societal forces that like you've got when you're um, well, let's put it this way: like when if 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 people are on the dating apps, you know, you see a lot of the same type of people. Yeah, it's a uh, it's this almost cookie cutter, copy and paste type idea of what attractiveness is. Right. But then it's actually interesting when you see that one off. Like, oh wow, this this person is different than the rest. But then you also have I don't know about you, but I think. Um, anyone well maybe not anyone but most people who uh say that that doesn't rub rub off on them on some way would be lying because Mm -hmm. it's it's this very powerful social force that conditions us to like certain things and not like certain things right and you know it takes um and i think it's it's a similar phenomenon because you look at these competitions i mean we know one of the most famous violent competitions that exists is here in Indianapolis. And mm-hmm. we both know the director. We know a bunch of people on the jury yep. and we've met these people. The people on the jury are incredibly, uh, you know, well-respected, smart, Absolutely. thoughtful violinists. Mm-hmm. 
They have the most fair adjudication processes they can. Mm -hmm. And when you put nine people like that in a room, and this is no uh, knock on any competition winner or anything like that, but for me, very often, a person who played a little more riskily and and, uh, took some chances comes out and finishes like fifth or sixth. Right, And and the top three are people who played really technically cleanly and... And that's a constant criticism of competitions. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how we fix it necessarily, but I don't. I, I that's um, yeah. That's 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 a that's definitely a dilemma. I mean, but but then again, anyone who finishes in in the finals, of course, I would easily pay any sort of money to go listen to. Yeah. Um, but I think I think you're right. I think. But the thing is, the more risk an individual musician makes, you also bear the. Uh, the chance that you may rub someone the wrong way, right, which is right. why I think some of these more risky players tend to not get the first three prizes because because they take more risk and perhaps right. they you know one of a couple of the judges really didn't like what this person For sure. did. They rub half them of them the wrong way and half the right way, and that always yep. ends up losing in that in that case. Mm-hmm. But I think it's. Um, as it relates to our listeners, that's that's one of the things we talk about more than anything else is that I think being rubbed the wrong way by riskiness often kind of shows a closed-mindedness of uh, listening ability. You know, I think often, and this is another thing I wanted to ask you about, I yeah. think the violin world, obviously, like you look at any academic field, you look at anything that's very specialized it becomes this highly insular place where, I mean, realistically, we have a standard interpretation mm-hmm, of mm-hmm. every major violin concert. You know, Sibelius yes. should be played this way. Yep. Tchaikovsky should be played. And someone who does something a little different from that, my feeling is if you listen to that and it's different from the standard interpretation and you go, oh, that rubbed me the wrong way, you're not really listening actively. Mm-hmm. You're just... Uh, re, you know, kind of relaxing into your into your comfort zone. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah. I, I think I personally think it's great when someone rubs gets rubbed the wrong way, because um, that just means that person is going to make a lasting impression on whoever just listened. Right. Um, and in some ways, that's actually more helpful than someone who just plays perfectly. Right. Because you're going to end up remembering this person's name. You're going to go back. You're going to look for this person's concert schedule. You're going to be like, ah, oh, like this guy or this girl um, is going to give me uh, excitement when I listen to them. Because it might not be something I expect. Right. And, you know, that way I'm always learning something. Uh, you know, there's this saying for 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 those of us that are used to getting uh, criticized in comments in the newspaper or whatever, um, it's not about what they write about you. It's about how much they write about you. Yeah. And so I think that should prove that, you know, you should do what you want. And if you rub someone the wrong way, you know, all press is good press. Yeah. No. And I think that's one thing that I've said several times to our listeners of this podcast, which is that, I think, and I think the listeners would agree, if you go away from a performance and say, I liked it, or I like this piece, I hated that piece, Mm -hmm. and that's it, then you've missed the general point of going to that concert. 
If you say, I really like this piece because fill in the blank, and it's because of something that you actually listen to closely and you have some reason, and you say, but I hated this piece because I actually heard that, you know, in the context of this idea, this other idea wasn't logically lined up and blah, great. If that, right. if, if you listen closely and you hated the piece, my guess is, like you said, you're going to have more motivation to go, what's so great about this composer? Like I listened closely and I thought it was terrible. Mm-hmm. Let me go listen to a couple more pieces, try to figure out why other people think this is great. Or I hated that so much and I went out and like spent my money, like let's go back again and, and try to get a better experience. You know, if you've invested yourself and listened closely, then yeah, being rubbed the wrong way isn't even a problem at all. That's Mm-mm. the point of going to a concert hall. Exactly. So I, I figure we should close. We've we've touched on a lot of uh, a lot of violin topics, but I want to close. Let's do some rapid fire questions for you. Yeah, let's do it. Things that uh, people may have heard about the violin world, and I just want to get your sure. take on. So, first one. Um, you have a very nice instrument. I do. You've you've played strads before. Mm-hmm. There's a big debate in, in. For those who don't know, the most famous type of violin. It's become something of a uh, common term just referring to things as strads anything that's super nice because Stradivarius violins are the most famous and well-respected violins mm-hmm. do you actually think that strads are the best violins and how do they compare to these we have some modern instruments now that are incredibly good we so do we thought? do I I do think it's a great instrument but it has to be you know in Played in the right hands. Mm-hmm. Let's, like, for example, if I draw the conclusion, uh, if I draw a comparison, um, a Toyota Corolla is going to get you from point A to point B. So yeah. is a Ferrari yeah. is going to also get you from point A to point B. Um, just like a violin from Char, or no, I'm not knocking Char or anything, but uh, a, a violin on the less expensive spectrum yeah. is also going to be able to play the uh, Tchaikovsky Violin Concerto just like a Strat is. So I think in the hands of the correct musician, a strat is an incredibly powerful tool. Yeah, but you th- it's a it's a type of instrument that requires the player to be particularly. It's way more important that the player is good. Yeah, as opposed to the violin being good. So that that kind of seems also similar to me. And you're you're an expert on instrument pricing. I'm thinking about wine pricing. There We're fans of wine. There you go. You know, I'm wondering if, uh, you know, there are these $5,000 bottles of wine. Exactly. <laughs> are these, and people ask often, are these yeah. better than the 500 or the $50 bottles right. of wine? But my guess is uh, for an experienced wine drinker, they can be very different. Oh, absolutely. Um, and, but, and instrument pricing is kind of similar. Talk a little bit about like, like how instruments are priced. These sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, instruments are priced based on, on art evaluation. So it's very heavily, uh, dependent on market value. So uh-huh. what one person is willing to pay, right. uh, for an instrument, because technically they're all pieces of wood. Right. So there is no literal value to the violin besides the metal and the wood. Yeah. Um, strads are, well, strads were, you know, made, centuries ago the Stradivarius is no longer alive therefore we will never have more Stradivarius right. so there's a there's a capped quantity of these instruments and um therefore there it's it's 
It's like a fixed level of... Basically, it, it won't be susceptible to inflation. I see what you mean. Yeah, was, yeah, right. My, right. my brain stopped working. But for a it's second. like, but but strads are running what, like five million dollars, if not more. Uh, you could probably seven, yeah. seven to ten something in that. In that and price there range. are very good modern instruments. I, you know, I got uh, the chance to play the three instruments that were prizes for the IVCI, the Indianapolis mm-hmm. Violin Competition. Two moderns, twenty five thousand dollars, and a strad. Yeah. And could you tell the difference? I, I could tell a difference just because the the, the modern instruments were like cannons compared gotcha, to the gotcha, strat. Gotcha. Yeah, 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 it's it's a, it's a much more. Um, it's it's for example in wine, very fine wine will probably be very subtle. Subtle, yeah. As and, opposed to something with explosive flavor. Yeah, right. And and modern instruments a lot of times are like the equivalent of like sixteen percent alcohol in your face, incredibly intense. Gotcha. But I mean. They were all very good, yeah. and and it's an interesting uh, that it's it's a it's an interesting thing. The fine instruments, anyways. Next rapid fire. Yeah, favorite violinist. Let's we we know a lot of violinists, famous violinists who are yeah. alive. So let's go famous violinist who is not currently alive. Who's not? Oh, that's a good question. Thank yeah. God. Uh, favorite violinist who's not currently. I'm uh, big fan of my old teacher Aaron Rosand. Ooh, that's so, um, one that I think people probably won't have heard before, so they should go and listen. They should definitely go and listen. He's yeah. got recordings of every little piece out there. He's he was um, in 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 the lessons I used to have with him. He was always talking about some hidden recording that he's like he has like stashed away in his house somewhere. Um, but I, I think a lot of that is being published now onto uh, Spotify. Um, so definitely go check that out. Um, Great violinist, if you, especially if you like miniature violin pieces. Yeah, nice. Favorite violin concerto to listen to, and then favorite violin concerto to play. Favorite concerto to play would probably have to be um, Sibelius. Okay. Favorite violin uh, violin concerto to to listen to. Yeah. Ah, man. I'm a big fan of Barber and Korngold. Huh. Uh, so both of these, I know they're not they're not your they're not the standard uh, concertos, but no, they're phenomenal. But they're though. phenomenal. But, but it's also because I've heard the other ones so many times. Yeah. I just want something new. I think Korngold is if people want to hear a masterpiece violin concerto that yeah. they might not know that Korngold yeah. violin concerto is unreal. Yeah, Sibelius is an interesting choice because that is a hard one. But it's not forty minutes like yeah, like Tchaikovsky, so it's in, in terms of stamina, it's a much easier concerto to to manage. Next one I have for you is hardest violin concerto to play. You think? Um, I think Sibelius, Tchaikovsky, Brahms, Beethoven. Yeah, just because it's so well known, every every little variation you do is going to be oh yeah judged under a microscope. Um, and I actually think personally of those, like. The Beethoven. Oh, that's so hard. You're, it's you're so unforgiving. You're playing scales for yeah. the whole time, basically. Scales and, and arpeggios. And I think that would probably be my, on like a purely musical level, it's that or the Brahms that yeah. are my favorite violin concertos. For sure. But I think they're the two hardest. I think so. Yeah. I think so. Um, Definitely. Favorite violin, let's say, sonata or miniature piece, non-concerto. Uh, favorite sonata would probably be the Franck violin sonata. Very good choice. Um, my favorite miniature 
Dvorak's got this little piece called uh, "Songs My Mother Taught Me." Oh, I, I think yeah. it's a voice. I think it's originally for voice. It can be played on like for, any you could. You could that, it, yeah. There's yeah. There's a transcription for everything. Uh, that's one of my personal favorites, and also "Valse Sentimentale" by uh, Tchaikovsky. Yeah, was one that I learned uh, uh, learned when I was studying with Roseanne. Uh, so definitely go check out his recording of that. Okay, those are those are so those are some good recommendations for our listeners. Last one. You are a uh, concert master, mm-hmm. and so favorite piece in orchestra yeah. to play. Let's do two. Okay. Let's do one that has a huge concert master solo. Oh, if God. you had today, like you know, you got to say, okay, opening concert of next season is yeah. this piece, one with a concert master solo and one without a concert master solo. Uh, one with concert master solo. Uh, I think. Also, Sprock is oh nice. That's that's kind. Of, it starts off the it's the Space Odyssey theme. Yes, um, but the piece is incredible. Yes. Uh, and also, if you are ever sitting, well, I know you're you're probably going to be conducting, but Jacob's definitely more than capable of sitting next to me and being my assistant concert master. Um, that's a that's definitely a two violin right. concert master solo thing. It's got it's got two parts. Is, I I have played the concert master solo that. It is devilishly it's hard. Yeah, yeah. It's infamous. Um, so definitely also Sprock for me for for the concert master one. Um, in terms of non concert master solo, I'm gonna have to go with Mahler two. Yeah, that's for me probably one of the coolest pieces I've ever played. It was one of the last pieces I played uh, in London. Uh, conducted by Vladimir Yurovsky. Uh Never going to forget that one. Yeah, oh that my is, God. Um, to be on stage for Mahler 2 is like nothing else. Yeah, try playing it without crying. Like yeah, that, that's yeah. A, it's a real... Um, you can't really put words to it. You and can't it's a it. it's a good violin part. There are some moments in the last movement where the violin section just gets to... It's just wailing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's always fun. Excellent, excellent. Well, Kevin, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. You've been a great guest, and hopefully it's it's helped our listeners learn a little bit about the instrument of the violin and go and tackle. I mean, I have to say, the violin is lucky that it has some of the greatest pieces ever written, composed. We are, we are very lucky. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, to be fair, we, we ch- like... Why would you ever choose to play the viola or something like that? <laughs> <laughs> I, I personally like the, the the range of it. I think the voice, the the the, uh, the register of the viola is very interesting because you can then dabble into cello repertoire or whatever. I know they hate that. Yeah. Um, you know. But let's absolutely. Be real. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> uh, come on. The violists violists have a Bartok concerto. Yeah. We actually have two. Ooh, um, that's true. Violists. What else do they have? They've got their like Stamitz concerto. We they happen can... to have five by yeah. an actual composer, Mozart. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's uh, you know. But we chose a very good instrument we to did. start off with here. Violin. We're doing okay. uh, Kevin, thanks so much for joining us, and Thank to you. all of our listeners, we'll uh, we'll see you soon. Thank you.